listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Our message this morning is called In the Heavenly Places, and this is a study of positional truth. And this will really be focusing on the issue of identity and what it means for identity to be a Christian. Let me pray and then we'll just uh, get straight into this. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. I just thank you so much for the treasure it contains, Lord, that it points us to your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that he would be lifted up and glorified by my words this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. August 20th, 1969. University police at Harvard University were called to the scene of an incident, and they arrived to the Widener Library to find a man unconscious lying on the floor in the early hours of the morning with a hanging rope from a window above him. Next to him lay a large rucksack and inside this rucksack were the two volumes of Harvard's Gutenberg Bible. I'm sure you all remember my study on the Gutenberg Bible from the series that we did. These were the first Bibles ever printed by Johann Gutenberg on the printing press. There's only about 47 of them in existence today, and they are almost pretty much priceless. But insurance value put this one at about $5 million. A single leaf of this Bible will sell for $26,000. Uh, um, however, if you've ever seen a Gutenberg Bible, they are massive. Two of these weighed at least 70 kilograms, which this man probably didn't take into account. Police believe the suspect hid in the Harvard Library until closing time. He then went onto the roof. He assembled his rope. He he came down the rope into the library window. He successfully bypassed their security and removed the Gutenberg Bibles from their display case, put them in his rucksack, and then it's said that because of the extra weight climbing down in the early hours of the morning, He lost his grip and he fell and he knocked himself unconscious on the floor. He he didn't die, but he was unconscious. The two Bibles were not damaged at all and they survived and they're in Harvard University Library to this day. But obviously the theft made them increase security by a lot and they've gone up in value since then. November 2013. Many of you probably know the auction house Sotheby's. famous, they deal with very high-end products. Uh, They broke the world record for the most expensive auction of a printed book ever sold. This was in 2013. The book that they sold was a small copy of what's called the Bay Psalm Book, dated to 1640. It's a tiny little thing, and it contains the Book of Psalms, um, has huge amounts of spelling mistakes in it and all this sorts of thing but it's very, very rare. There's about 11 of them in existence. Um, They were published in Cambridge, Massachusetts. They were the first book ever published when the Puritans landed in the New World, and they translated the Book of Psalms from Hebrews to English, and they printed the Bay Psalm book. It sold for $14.2 million, most expensive printed book ever sold. Now, of course, as Christians, we know that the value of the Bible It's not in the monetary value that the world attaches to it. The real value of the Bible is in the words between its covers, in what it teaches, in the one it points us to. It is quite literally priceless in that sense. You remember when Jesus gave that hard teaching in John chapter 6 and some of the disciples left him, he then turned to his disciples and he said, do you want to leave also? And Peter said to him, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of life. 
you have the words of life. Psalm 119, the lure of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 127, therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Psalm 19 verse 10, may you more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. This is the word of God. Abraham Lincoln called the Bible the best gift that God has ever given to man. Many of you are probably familiar with the children's author Enid Blyton. Uh, over 600 children's books to her names. Um, I have a Bible from here, one of the Bibles in my collection. Shocker, I collect Bibles. This is inscribed by Enid Blyton. It was a gift she gave to someone. And she writes in the front of it, she says, Here is the greatest book in the world. I hope you will read it every day, your friend Enid Blyton. And this is a coronation Bible. This means this Bible was printed in 1953 when Queen Elizabeth was, had her coronation. And on the front page, it highlights some of the words that happen at a coronation service. Um, during a, the coronation of any British monarch, there's a part of the ceremony where the Queen is presented with a Bible. And the, and the vicar will say this to her. He says, we present you with this book the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the living oracles of God. The most valuable thing this world affords. Now, the actual coronation Bibles were amazingly beautiful things. They look like this. They have the Queen's crest on the front of them and silver kind of all around them. This is just a small reproduction. They're massive, the real ones. But they're quite amazing. But that's what the Queen is handed, the most precious thing that the world affords. In the words of John Wesley, he says, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. And God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end he came from heaven, and he has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. And I would say, let us all be people of one book in this church, because in that book you will find what's called the pearl of great price, and that is Jesus himself, the greatest treasure we have on this earth. Now let me contrast this view of the word of God with a more recent example. And if some of you may be familiar with GQ magazine, it's Gentleman's Quarterly, some of you may be familiar with it, it's, it's very popular. Um, they released an article just a few weeks back, and it was called 21 Books You Don't Have to Read. And they begin by saying this, not all great books have aged well. Some of them are racist, some of them are sexist, but most are just really, really boring. So we, a group of unboring writers, give you permission to strike these books from the canon. Now the article is as idiotic as it is ridiculous. Um, I say that quite frankly, it is ridiculous. They recommend the notebook instead of the Bible. That's their, they give you a substitute for each book they say you shouldn't read and they give you one that you should read. Um, they show how little they understand when they call Mark Twain and Huckleberry Finn racist without realizing that that book was written as a polemic against slavery. It's just, that's the sort of level that you're dealing with here. But they, they reserve their harshest criticism for the Bible, which is number 12 on their list. And they say this of the Bible. The Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have not read it. Those who have read it know there are some good parts, but overall, it is certainly not the finest thing that man has produced. 
It is repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, foolish, and even at times, ill-intentioned. GQ magazine. Now, where, where do we really begin with this? Um, unfortunately, such sort of glaring ignorance about the history of the Bible is all too common today. And unfortunately, many people will probably take the word of the editors of a glossy magazine over historical scholarship. This magazine is also known for its men's grooming tips, its articles on how to watch porn ethically, and other such delights. But yet, according to them, the most influential book in the history of the world is not worth reading. Now, before I jump in briefly to respond to a few things, I think we need to just be careful that we don't have a, a log in our own eye, so to speak, as we come to this. We must shoulder some of the blame, and I believe they identify that for us in the first line of their statement, where they say, it's rated very highly by all people who supposedly live by it, but in who actuality have never actually read it. And I find that's a challenge to us as a church. We need to make sure that we are people of one book, and that we know that book very, very well. Maybe we no longer treasure this best-selling book of all time because its truths are no longer hidden in our heart as they were in generations previously. And if that is the case, then we would say the writing is truly on the wall for Western civilization. But as it stands, the Bible is the most influential book ever written, period. Nothing comes close. And it remains the world's best-selling book every year. The Bible has shaped Western civilization more than anything else. No other book comes close. And you cannot hope to really understand Western civilization without it. And I think that is part of the problem in a generation and a world where the Bible is not seen as a source of revelation or even influence. People are trying to understand the world without realizing that they are standing on the shoulders of giants. That is the Judeo-Christian worldview. Why do we have a seven-day week? Why is the year 2018? Why do we have printed books? Why is the average Westerner literate at all? This is because of the Bible. History will testify to that. From art, the great artists like Rembrandt, people like Michelangelo, to education, the founding of the great universities, Harvard, Yale, Cambridge, Oxford, to law, the Magna Carta, Declaration of Independence, healthcare, hospitals, nursing, social reform, 100 of them I could mention, and the sanctity of life. All of these things come from the word of God and the Judeo-Christian worldview. The words of the Bible are immortalized for us in books, in plays, and in songs from all around the world. The words of the Bible are engraved on buildings and monuments all around this world. You'll find pictures of the cross on flags and coins from all around the world. Millions of people around this globe from every tribe, tongue, and nation testify to the life-changing power of the word of God. Now, how can something with such influence be described as irrelevant? Even if you don't believe it's the word of God, you cannot deny that it has had more influence on our world than any other book in the world. So I think the problem is really actually the readership that accept these sorts of things without checking them. And this would probably be, gentlemen's courtly, this would be the young men in this case, but I'm speaking way more broadly than that. You see, they accept this sort of stuff because in their own experience, they do not see the Bible as having anything useful to say. Again, they are blissfully unaware that they are standing and most of the things that they have, the freedoms that they hold dear and the benefits that they have growing up in these societies are born out of a Judeo-Christian worldview. 
but without knowing the foundation upon which they stand and not experience any, anything of the word of God in their life, they don't see the relevance to it and you can't blame them for that necessarily. But this is such a great shame because the Bible speaks directly to the big questions of life. Where do we come from? What are we? How should we live? And where are we going? These are questions that have been asked by every group of people for every generation. And numerous people, from religious people to scholars to biologists to theologians to philosophers, have all weighed in with an answer to these things. You see, when I look at the generation of people that are reading these sorts of magazines, I see a generation that is plagued with these sorts of problems, problems that come from those sorts of questions. Mental health crises are at academic proportions. Governments are appointing ministers to try and combat loneliness and depression and the range of other problems that we see on a daily basis in the news. People crave meaning and purpose to their lives. There are numerous studies that have done have proved that people live longer when you know you have a meaning and a purpose to your life and you're less likely to suffer from some of these things. Yet, in our culture, the evisceration of the transcendent, the removal of God from all things, illustrated typically in this sort of article, remove the Bible as a source for your life, means that people are left, quite frankly, stumbling in the dark. We know this is a dark world. The Bible is described as the light. Jesus is obviously the light of the world, and the, the lamp of the Bible points you to the light of the world. You remove those two things, and you're left in the dark and you're blind. A story emerged in the British press recently. The UK's youngest lottery winner, this was just last year, I believe, she won, I forget what it was, a few million pounds, um, and it ruined her life, and she was preparing to sue Camelot, the lottery provider. And in an interview, she said this. She said, people look at me and think, I wish I had her lifestyle, I wish I had her money, but they don't realize the extent of my stress she said, I have material things, but apart from that, my life is empty. What is my purpose in life? You see, material things cannot satisfy the existential longings that we have in our heart for these things. And God put these things there. It says, doesn't it, that he put eternity in our hearts. That is what we are created for. And therefore, we will never find satisfaction anywhere else. Not a satisfaction that lasts, anyway. This is the cry of a generation who are bred and grown up on things like GQ magazine and all sorts of stuff that goes with that. You remember just, um, I think it was April, April this year, there was a famous DJ, DJ Avicii. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. He's Swedish. His real name's Tim Bergler, Bergling. He was a big, he was a Grammy-nominated house, uh, house artist. He committed suicide recently. He, he uh, cut himself with a broken bottle. He was 28 years old and he died. And in a statement put out by his family, they said this. He said, our beloved Tim was a seeker, a fragile artistic soul searching for answers to existential questions. The sorts of questions we're talking about this morning. He really struggled with thoughts about meaning and life and happiness, and he could not go any longer. He wanted to find peace. And he took his life. Now, I read things like that, and it's just an utter tragedy. And on the one hand, things like this should stir us up to be more bold with the word of God, because the word of God is the only remedy for these sorts of problems in a 
broad sense. But you see, I believe there is a connection between tragedies like this that are all too frequent and what we read in that article. There is definitely a connection. Meaning, life, purpose, happiness, peace. These are the cries of a generation, well, of a world, really, that have been denied the life-giving power of the word of God. Or I would say maybe not denied, but have been deceived into believing that the word of God has nothing to say on these issues, that it is irrelevant. But the Bible, its popularity, its longevity, the Bible has always had answers for these things. John 10, the thief comes only to steal and destroy. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Psalm 16, verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life because in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Romans 5, 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God throughout our, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 26, verse 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And on and on this list could go. The Bible addresses these issues directly. Purpose and meaning and all these sorts of questions, these existential questions as they're often called, dealing with existence, they're all connected to the subject of identity. It all comes back one way or another to identity and identity and all those four questions are connected to each other. Where do we find our identity? That's what we're going to look at a little bit this morning. Now, the culture, having disqualified Christianity, having removed the Bible as a source to find any identity, the world offers a number of options for young people, or for all people, in fact, not just young people, all people, to choose from. Now, one of these, I've probably spoken with you before, one of these would be biology, evolution. We are simply the product of an endless chain of, of random mutations. In the words of Stephen Jay Gould, we are nothing more than a little mammalian afterthought. In the words of Richard Dawkins, there is no good, no evil, no meaning, no purpose. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Either way, it's a meaningless, purposeless life. I give you a hundred quotes like that from those sorts of people. I'm not going to look at that one this morning. The other option that the world offers for people for identity is themselves and the culture. And this is a big one. Remember the story, remember Snow White, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the, the, queen, the evil queen? She would ask this mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And the mirror would then speak back to her, you queen are the fairest of them all. Until one day she asked the same question and then the, I think the mirror says, I forget it exactly, the mirror says, it's true, you're, you are a uh, fair queen, but there is one fairer than you, Snow White. And then she, that's how the big, that's why she always wants to kill Snow White. Now we all relate to that queen in some ways not because we're evil queens trying to kill Snow White, but because we all have our mirrors that we use to tell us who we are. Too often we allow other people's perceptions to become the basis of our identities, and it's very easy to fall into this trap. Too often we identify ourselves with the things we do. Hi, my name's so-and-so, I do this for a living. Our whole identity is wrapped up in our jobs. Quite often our whole identity is wrapped up in our community that we're associated with, in our church or in any sort of group or club or whatever it may be. We all fall into that trap. When we look in the mirror, we see our reflection, we make judgments about ourselves, and usually the mirrors we use are the opinions of the world and the opinions of those around us. And whilst this is not always bad, <laughs> depending on the opinions you're using, this is not the place we search for identity. And unfortunately, I believe this is all too easy for us now because we all carry around little mirrors with us in our pockets. 
or we have our laptops. I'm not against technology. I love technology. Technology is technology. It's, it's amoral in that sense. But there are certain things that you need to be aware of because if a technology opens up something that appeals to our natural propensity to sin, then you need to start taking note of these things. If it causes us to increase and to struggle in certain areas, whatever the technology may be in itself, it's the man that is fallen and is playing on our sin nature. And you all know if that happens to you, it does happen to us all. That's when we need to be aware. It feeds our natural inclination to focus on self, whether that is a negative focus or a positive focus. You see, this is why Jesus commanded us to deny ourself. It's a fundamental tenet of the Christian life that we lay ourselves down, we pick up our cross, and we find our life and existence in him. We'll explore that more. Now, there's a huge link between depression and mental health and, and smartphones and all these sorts of things. I've read about six recent peer-reviewed studies from that recently. They're getting quite boring, to be frank. With things like that, you have to be, you know, the data's a little selective. Then, you know, people always have a point they're trying to make, and quite often you have to bear that in mind when you read them. But there's something to a lot of these articles. But as I read them, one thing that I found interesting, when I was reading these things, I realized this is really nothing new. You see, we might have smartphones now, but the, the issue behind it is really nothing new. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. It reminded me of something I read about for another study I was doing, and it goes right back to Greek mytholo mythology with the man named Narcissus, person from Greek mythology. From, his, from this person, we get our word narcissistic or narcissism. That is someone who has an excessive interest in self or ego and all these sorts of things. Narciss narcissism. Anyway, he was a person in Greek mythology. He was celebrated for his beauty, and he had many admirers slash followers. He eventually fell in love with his own self-image when he saw a glimpse of himself reflected in a pool as he was washing one morning. And he was stuck there, and he endlessly gazed at himself, admiring himself, but it says after a while, his admiration of himself turned to hatred. And all of a sudden he thought he, was, he hated himself. And eventually despair and remorse overtook Narcissus because he could not remove his eyes from himself and he would compare himself with those around him and he hated himself. And eventually Narcissus took his own life. That's Greek mythology, that is so old. That is so old. And I read that. And it sounds so familiar to me from these reports and these testimonies and these studies that I read from people today. You see, like narcissists, the obsession we have to meet an unattainable standard has left many people in our world insecure, empty, and broken. Constantly seeking affection from others, which not is, affection's a great thing if, you, if it's done rightly, but this is something that it's not supposed to ever be. Now, what is the answer for this? Quite simply, I believe we need to look in a different mirror. We don't look in the mirror of the world. We don't look to other people's opinions. We don't look to the culture. We need to see a mirror, an image that will show us a true image of who we are, but also a mirror that will show us a true image of someone else. We're told in the book of James that the Bible is like a mirror. It gives us a description of our identity as God intended. James 1, to 24 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, 
being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in doing this. As John Calvin said, a person may see himself as he really is by looking into the faithful mirror of Scripture. And I believe that is the mirror we need to look into. That is what we will be doing this morning. So let's turn our eyes to the Scriptures and our thoughts to the heavenly places. And from this we can learn a number of things about humanity. The first thing about our identities is that we are created. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And I would just draw your attention to the words there that male and female are created both in the image of God. Your gender is very specific to your identity with Christ. It is specifically designed. The Bible clearly teaches human beings are created in the image of God. This is a distinct honour afforded to nothing else in the entire creation narrative. It is the sole privilege of mankind alone, bestowed on us by a loving creator. This implies that we are made to be like God and resemble God in some fundamental and profound ways. You see, the interesting thing about this that we need to grasp is that an image cannot exist by itself. It only finds its explanation in the original which it is imaging. You need to understand that. And this profoundly impacts our question of who we are. If we want to understand what it means to be human, we must first understand something about who God is because he is the one that we are imaging, because we are made in his image, and he is the source of the image. It also means that our true identity is not contingent upon our success in the world, our looks, our beauty, whatever we do in this world, that actually has nothing to do with it at a deeper level. Rather, our identity is totally dependent on him. There are a number of truths that stand out in the Bible. We could do a whole session on what it means to be made in the image of God. Let me list to you a few things. Perhaps the most profound truth that sets us apart as unique, as humans, is that we are spiritual beings, a fact heavily denied by most people today. This is one of the ways we image God. God is spirit, and that is why. Part of our uniqueness is that we have two distinct parts. We have a body and we have a soul. Genesis 2.7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the bread of life, and man became a living soul. You see, the soul is responsible for the areas of humanity that relate to the spiritual element of ourselves. Individual subjective consciousness, self-awareness, emotions, moral awareness, rationality, cognition, the ability to make free choices, unless you're a Calvinist. The Bible provides some insight into the dual nature of man. The Bible commands us to love God with all our heart, our soul, and our strength. Jesus also clearly affirms the dualistic nature of man. You remember in Matthew 10 where he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body. Matthew 10, 28. You see, the reality is, as human beings, we are embodied creatures, whether male or female. We are body and soul, possessing inherent worth, dignity and value. We are created equal in the image of God. And that teaching alone is one of the main things which was the foundation for Western civilization. It furnishes the foundation for all theories of human rights and equal rights when they're done biblically. And the, see that you, the thing that you see today with all these movements raising up, trying to claim human rights, they deny this emphatically and they are doomed to failure because of that. The next thing we can learn about humanity, although we are made in the image of God and all the dignity that comes with that, we are also fallen. 
The truth is we are broken and we are flawed in many ways. And the image of God in us has been corrupted. And this corruption came through the entrance of sin into this world. And it has impacted every aspect of creation. You'll find the narrative for this in Genesis chapter 3. You know the story, the seduction of Adam and Eve, the entrance of sin, the subsequent cursing of the earth by the Lord. And just as you know, death reigned through one man, sin spread to the whole world. Paul hammers this home in Romans 5. Now sin is an unpopular term today. We're not a Christian culture necessarily anymore. We, we don't really know these terms. Sin simply means rebellion against God. It's a transgression of his commandments, according to 1 John 3, 4. The original Hebrew implies the kind of connotation of missing the mark, and the mark being the perfect will of God. Therefore, when the Bible says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 6, we don't really need to argue against that. If the mark is the perfect will of God, it's not hard to admit that we've all fallen short of the perfect will of God at various points in our lives. Malcolm Muggeridge, the, uh, the journalist who came to Christ late in his life, he said this, he said, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. What he means by that is people hate to be told that they're sinners. They'll, but all you have to do to see that people, man are serious is look at the news <laughs> every day. Millions and millions of examples that mankind is fallen. You see, the Bible describes humanity with a dual nature. On the one hand, we're purposeful creations of a loving God. We're fashioned in his image. But on the other hand, we are said to be separated from him by rebellion and sin. It's said that no one is righteous and everyone is dead in trespasses and sins. Our hearts are deceitful and our hearts are the source of immorality, according to Jesus in Matthew 15 and James 4. And we are, in fact, slaves to sin. How dare you call me a sinner? This is the response from the culture. Such is the indignation that might be levelled against someone who points this out to people. How dare we re deconstruct their positive self-image, is sort of the language that we would have today. How dare we say something that might contribute to them having low self-esteem. You see, society has an obsession with self-esteem, which in itself should tell us that it's getting something wrong about self-esteem. You can go to a bookstore, seven steps to a better life, 12 steps to this and that, improve your life. This is one of the reasons why yoga is so popular these days. Some of the things it offers people, on and on it goes. And then on the other side of that coin, maybe occasionally a very pious religious man will step into the fold offering his view of humanity. And he will focus singularly on humanity as a miserable and wretched band of sinners deserving of death. This is the sort of Puritan line that we have. Um, Usually they are saying these things to more defend the doctrine of total depravity from their theology, and there's some truth to what they say, but yet they miss out some of the glory as well that God has bestowed upon mankind. What is it? Do we have a low self-image? Do we have a high self-image? Where are we supposed to come down on this? The truth is we need a biblical self-image. Again, we need to look in the right mirror. And we've seen that this biblical self-image implies some wonderful truth that indicate the extreme value God has placed on human persons, yet at the same time we need to confront the, serious, the, uh, the aspects of humanity that are not so positive. The Bible is very clear. Human beings have a universal problem and it's called sin, and it has separated us from God. You see, humanly speaking, this situation is utterly hopeless for mankind. That is without God. The only hope that mankind has is found in a person and in the message of Jesus Christ. It says in 1 Timothy that Jesus is our hope and he is the only one who will have hope in a hopeless world. He's the only one that can offer that in the sense when you understand the reality. We are created and we are fallen. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you don't know Christ, 
That is really as far as you can go in your exploration of human identity. That is where the, kind of the train stops for you right there. However, there is so much more that you were intended for that God offers you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants your identity to be found in Jesus Christ. And this is the subject of positional truth. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, please. We'll read a few of these things now. We're going to look at verses 1 to 14. We're going to be given a glimpse of some of the things that we have in Christ Jesus. Verses 1 to 14 are, comprise a single sentence in the Greek. One beautiful sentence that takes us from the ground up into the heavenly places of the throne room of God. Now, I would love to go through every verse with you. We don't have time. I'm just going to read it to you, and then I'm going to pick out a number of things that I want to, we definitely don't have time, definitely um, focus on. Verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You'll notice that phrase, heavenly places, six times in this book. Every spiritual blessing. And then, let's, oh, I'm just going to, we won't read the whole thing, I'll read the, the relevant verses. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We are redeemed. That's the next thing you need to know for human identity. You are redeemed. You see, the story of mankind's redemption is etched deep into the annals of human history. The language of redemption finds its origin in the story of the Exodus. You remember that. The plagues that came upon Egypt. The Passover, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And God passed over and then he brought the Israelites out of slavery into freedom and that was called this was their redemption they were set free from slavery and redeemed and went into the promised land by the blood of the passover lamb now the new testament uses this background when it talks about redemption and it refers to the death of christ you see it doesn't focus on how a person is declared righteous it really focuses on how a person is set free this is what redemption is talking about we're called slaves to sin aren't we Romans says that numerous times we are slaves to sin and likewise there is a price that must be paid to free us and the price is the death of Christ and amazingly Christ is also described as our Passover lamb there's no coincidence there that was planned and specifically the Bible says that the blood of Christ was the ransom that had to be paid to purchase us out of the slave market of sin 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, it's no coincidence that Jesus was crucified during the Jewish festival of Passover, as the Passover lambs in the temple were being sacrificed. At this time, by God's eternal decree, he ordained that the true Passover lamb of the world would be sacrificed to purchase redemption for all of humanity. Now, what does biblical redemption mean for you? You see, biblical redemption really is a beautiful truth. The God of this universe, he came to earth to live as a perfect human in order that he could die in our place and save us. It cost him everything. Every drop of blood, that was spilled upon the ground of Calvary that day was done for you, to redeem you back to himself. And his pursuit of you took him from the throne room of glory, surrounded by multitudes of heavenly hosts, to singing holy, 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 down to the hills of Jerusalem, to be delivered into the hands of evil men. And it was there on that hill in Golgotha that he laid down his life 
and he was hated and despised, rejected and forsaken as he was nailed to that old rugged cross. All of that for us. And this cross, this instrument of death, becomes eternally the receipt that proves we have been purchased by God. And this is the truth for human identity. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are blood-brought individual with the highest currency in the entire cosmos, the blood of God's own dear son. You are blood-bought. You are redeemed. Second thing we know is that we are loved. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, it says, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Now, love, what an abused and misunderstood concept this is. We need some theological grounding for it. We watch movies about love, we sing songs about love, but yet, do we ever ask the question, what is love? Should we try to understand it, or do we just want to feel it? Now, the search for love is a universal phenomenon, and I believe it's, it's biblical, it's from God. It's something that burns deep within the human heart. However, the vision of love that we get is heavily influenced by romanticism of the 18th century. It's a love that singularly focuses on feelings, emotions, and passions. And the problem with this is, logically, if you have a concept of love that is about falling in love, then the, what's to stop the concept of falling out of love? And you'll hear this in many divorce cases, I just stop loving them. If that is your understanding of love, it's insufficient. Now, passion and desire are well and good, they are there for a reason, when they are given legitimate expression in the environment for which they were created. But love cannot be simply reduced to just that. As C.S. Lewis said, love is not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. A steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained and for whatever it will cost you. Now we can look around the world and it's easy to see the pain caused from lack of love. Jesus in fact says that the, when people's love grows cold that will be a sign of the end times. There are times when love may be hard, it may require sacrifice, it may be something that you don't necessarily feel like doing at that time, but foundationally love is a commitment and an action and sometimes it will be accompanied by intense passion and desires but other times it will require laying down your desires for the sake of the one you love. Ultimately, love will affect how we behave, how we think, and the value we place upon every individual human being. Love is intrinsic to who we are as human beings because we're made in the, being of, in the image of God, and love finds its source not in the mind of man, but in the mind of God. 1 John 4, 7-8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whatever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not go love God, because God is love. You see, in the Christian understanding, God, love is an attribute of God. The Bible declares that God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, that he is rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, and the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards us. This love is an unconditional love. You see, our experience in this world is that we earn things. We work hard and then we get something in return. And many times there's nothing wrong with that. Working hard is good. But we have to be careful. We often project this understanding on our attitude towards God's love. And we project this onto God. You see, God's love for the Christian is an unconditional love. It cannot be coerced or earned. It simply exists because it's part of his nature. We do not deserve it, but it is freely given. It remains just as strong and real even when we spurn it. Nothing we do will cause him to love us more and nothing we can do will cause him to love us less. 
what security and assurance we can take in this fact that the sovereign of the universe loves us with an everlasting love. And the Bible declares we love him because he first loved us. The love of God is also a holy love. It's not some sort of soppy, sentimental love like we often see. We must not take our understanding of love from the culture's definition of love. Love is not some buzzword that is to be used as a cover for sin. Oh, it's okay if I do this. God doesn't mind. God's a God of love. God's a God of love. We see that all the time, particularly in Christian circles. Love will always win, the famous book that came out a few years ago. But these are theologically inept views of love. You see, the love of God is not like this at all. It is a holy love. It is not controlled by emotions. It is employed in conjunction with all of God's attributes, all at the same time. He doesn't operate one with the other. His attributes are who he is, and one of his attributes is that he is holy. Isaiah 6, verse 3 Remember the four living creatures crying out, holy, holy, holy. It is impossible to separate his holiness from his love. And we know that God is holy, we know that God is love, therefore we conclude his love is a holy love. What does that mean? A holy love seeks to encourage holiness in the objects that it loves. This means that a holy love is a purifying love. It's one that seeks our well-being and one that is not afraid to take corrective action when we stray. Ultimately, it is a love that seeks to conform us into his image, that we should be holy and blameless before him, Ephesians 1.4. Now, God's love and you. You see, the love of God is on a continual, relentless pursuit, and it is a pursuit as old as time itself. It's a pursuit that stretches back into eternity, into the very mind of God. This love was there at the dawn of creation. It witnessed the creation of Adam and Eve, the rise of the first civilizations, the building of Tower of Babel and the scattering of the nations. This love has seen the rise and falls of great empires. It's seen revolutions and counter-revolutions. It's seen great leaders rise up only to leave their footprints in the sands of time. Love was there when the great pyramids were built, when the Parthenon and the Colosseum were the seat of power. It has seen peace and war, plagues and famine. It's witnessed man's greatest achievements and seen man's biggest failures. And it was there when the Berlin Wall came down, when the Titanic sank, when man walked on the moon, when we stormed the beaches of Normandy and when the Twin Towers fell. Divine love has been there during every event of your life. It's with you there now, all the time, pursuing you, seeking to call you into relationship with him or to take you further into the relationship you already have with him as it conforms you into the image of his son. And God provided the greatest proof and demonstration of his love for mankind 2,000 years ago on that hill outside the walls of Jerusalem. When he was convicted as a criminal, although there was no wrongdoing on his part, when that crown of thorns was placed on his head for you, as his back was scourged by the Roman whip, as he was led out to the hill and laid on his back, as the Roman centurions put those nails into his hands and his feet and he was hoisted up on that crossbeam and the weight of his own body began to suffocate him until hours later he cried out with his last breath, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That is the love that the Bible shows us. The Bible declares, Romans 5.8, that through the cross, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross of Christ stands forever as a demonstration and testimony to the sacrificial God of love that God has for you. Why is it? This is why Christians love the cross. We know it's a, tor uh, you know, it's a torture device, basically, but for us, it is the demonstration of God's sacrificial love. This is why we love the cross. We're loved. The next thing, we are adopted. 
I find this one of the most cherishing and comforting truths in the Christian faith. It says, Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. You see, by adoption we mean the specific teaching that when you become a Christian, you are adopted into an intimate and loving family, and you get to call God your Father. It's an intimate and utterly unique designation for God that we have the privilege of using. God's heart is always for the fatherless. The Bible declares that God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, Psalm 68. The Christian should defend the weak and the fatherless and uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, Psalm 82. You can read many surveys and studies and look around at the pain caused by what they call a fatherless gen- generation. It's, it's a problem in our world. And it's the gospel that is the answer to this problem. God says in 2 Corinthians 6, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Elsewhere, the Apostle John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, 1 John 3, 1. You see, relating to God as Father and understanding what it means to be adopted is essential to correctly grasping the truth and the uniqueness of Christianity. J.I. Packer, in his famous book, Knowing God, he sums it up like this. He says, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. We are adopted. In adoption, we are placed into the family of God. And it is the role of the Holy Spirit to witness this truth. And this is why we are given the Spirit. We'll read it there in a few verses down in Ephesians. In verse 13, it says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. We all have the Holy Spirit living inside us. That is our guarantee that we are sealed and we cannot be separated from the love of God. One of the things that comes along with adoption is that we are heirs with Christ. We are given, an heir means you receive an inheritance. Ephesians 1.14, it says, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. In Romans 8, it says, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It says in 1 Peter that our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Now this inheritance includes many things. We won't go through them all now. I think they're too glorious for us to describe really. The Bible describes them as the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now we are co-heirs with Christ. We are privileged to share in everything the Father will give to the Son, as outlandish and crazy as that sounds. It says in Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2, that he has spoken to us through his son, who he has appointed the heir of all things. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. And the word literally means everything. He will inherit everything. The restored creation includes everything that we have. All of the beauty of our salvation, the redemption, the forgiveness, the mercy, the grace. It includes our adoption, the fact that we're made, heir, made heirs with Christ. We are his and he is ours. It includes our future glorification, our eternal life, 
and our existence with him in the future kingdom of God. Quite literally, by a sheer act of God's undeserved favour, his grace, we are given everything that belongs to Christ. And the amazing thing about this is, none of this has got anything to do with how we are. Anything good in us, necessarily, how well we live our Christian lives, necessarily, that is important, but that is not what this is founded upon. It comes through an act of God's grace. This is positional truth. It's important for us to understand this because when times come in our life, in our Christian lives, when you do struggle and they will come many, many times, maybe you doubt certain things about the Christian faith or you cannot get yourself out of a situation, you're, you're stuck in a habitual sin, on and on the list could go, we all know these sorts of things. It's at that time when we need to remember that we are secure, holy, blameless, loved, chosen, predestined, sealed, given an inheritance that is unperishable kept for us in heaven and it is all there because we are in Christ Jesus. The final thing I'll look at with you this morning as it relates to our identity is that we are called. This means we are given a purpose. You see we said didn't we material things don't really lead to fulfillment in life. We have an inner cry for purpose that transcends these physical things. Now for the Christian or for everyone really the desire finds its satisfaction fulfilled in God and in God alone because he knows what that hole is and he's the only one that can fill it. It's what, he, it's what we were designed for. We are citizens of God's kingdom and we all have a part to play in this kingdom. There's no citizens that don't have a role or a part. And understanding our calling as Christians is the key to living a fulfilled Christian life. Quite simply, this means serving God. Os Guinness defines calling in the following way. He says, calling is the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we do, and everything we have is invested with a special devotion and dynamism, lived out as a response to his summons and service. You see, the call we have as Christians is like no other calling in the world, because it comes from the highest possible source in the universe, one that actually is outside of the universe. It is a call to be involved in the work of God. It is a holy calling and nothing in this world can even compare to that. You see, the Christian's calling is one that looks towards and builds into an eternal kingdom. And such a calling means that your life can never be considered empty or meaningless, no matter what activity you are engaged in. God's calling infuses every moment of your life with significance and meaning, because you are part of his kingdom. His plan and purpose for your life is part of his eternal plan for the destiny of mankind. And you see the true secret, if you want to call it that, to finding your calling is to realise that it comes from God. A fundamental aspect of the Christian life, as I said before, is laying aside ourself and letting God have authority over our lives, yielding ourselves to him. This is, the, this is what John the Baptist meant when he said, I must decrease, but he must increase, um, as he was pointing people now towards Jesus rather than towards himself in his ministry. We'll just end in a moment, but I want to just read to you the words of C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. I see he echoes the same thought as he gives us the answer to finding who we truly are and what we're here for. And as always, he writes brilliantly. He says, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take, take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Sounds counterintuitive, but this is, this is what he's talking about. There is so much of him that millions and millions of little Christs, all different, will still be too few to express him fully. He made them all. He invented, as an author invents characters in a novel, all the different men that you and I were intended to be. 
and in that sense our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It is no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own hereditary and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and I cannot stop. I think that's a beautiful way that he puts that. Ultimately, because God is the one that truly knows us, finding who we are and finding what our calling is only comes from knowing him. And quite frankly, that is the true meaning of life. And we can say that confidently. And we have that message to give to people. This is what the gospel says on the issue of identity. In him, we are chosen We are holy and blameless, we are redeemed, we are loved, we are forgiven, we are adopted, we are given inheritance, we are sealed and we are called into service. All of this, by his grace, has nothing to do with us. That is what it means to be in the heavenly places. The riches of God's grace which he lavished upon us, Ephesians 1 verse 7. This is the truth and the utter uniqueness of the Christian faith. Nothing else offers what Christ offers us. And all of this is given to us by virtue of being in him, being part of his body, being attached to the head. This is what it means. We end with one more quote from Lewis. This is the final three lines from his book, The Last Battle, which is the final book in the Chronicle of Narnia trilogy, as all the Narnians finally arrive on what they call Aslan's shore, which is a metaphor for heaven. And he ends it with these three words. I just love these. I'll end this study with this. He says, all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And that's what our future awaits us in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for all the blessings that you've given us in yourself. May we forever be learning and mining these truths of God, Lord, as we grow in the grace and knowledge and we grow in our understanding of you, Lord, as we are called into service, Father, would you give us uh, ears to hear where your voice is leading us, Lord God. I pray now for the fellowship time that we have to one another. I pray that you would just bless everyone here in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.